Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through a unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's Eastern Christian Publications. Christ is risen. Indeed is risen. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyer, your host. We are in the midst of the radiant resurrection. We just completed what we call the Bright Week, so appropriately named the Bright Week, the week immediately after the resurrection of our Lord, this first week after Pascha. And we come upon then this first Sunday after Pascha, an interesting apostle, a very interesting apostle, one that kind of gets, as they say today, a bad rap. But this year, we also have on the same day, it happens to fall on April 23rd, we have also another male saint, St. George, is a great martyr. Now, we're going to get to St. Thomas in a moment, but let's look at St. George for just a moment here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at him historically first. And with the use of a handy guide that we use often here in Light of the East, something I recommend to you, highly recommend. I've said it to you before. It's called the Prologue from Okrin. It's also called the Synaxarian. And the copies that I have, actually it's a four-volume set, is from Lazarica Press out of Birmingham, England. Birmingham, England, Lazarica Press. It's put out actually by the Serbian Orthodox Church. But it's a very handy thing to give you some great insights into the day-to-day spirituality, the saints, the liturgical calendar of the, certainly of the Byzantine Church, the Byzantine tradition. The story of St. George goes like this from the Synaxarian, again, also called the Prologue from Okrid, goes like this. The renowned and glorious martyr was born in Cappadocia, the son of rich and God-fearing parents. His father suffered for Christ, after which his mother moved to Palestine. Now, when George grew up, he went into the army, in which he rose by the age of 20 to the rank of tribune, and as such was in service under the emperor Diocletian, When this emperor began a terrible persecution of Christians, George came before him and boldly confessed that he was a Christian. The emperor threw him into prison and commanded that his feet be put into the stocks and heavy weight placed on his chest. After that, he commanded that he be bound on a wheel, under which was a board with great nails protruding and thus be turned. He then had him buried in a pit with only his head above the ground and left there for three days and nights. Then... Through some magician, he gave him deadly poison, but in the face of all these tortures, 
George prayed unceasingly to God, and God healed him instantly and saved him from death to the great amazement of the people. When he also raised a dead man to life by his prayers, many embraced the Christian faith. Among these was the emperor's wife, Alexandra, and the chief pagan priest, Athanasius, the governor, Glycerius and Valerius, Donatus and Thorinus. Finally, the emperor commanded that George and the empress Alexandra be beheaded. Blessed Alexandra died in the scaffold before being killed, and St. George was beheaded. This happened in the year 303 A.D. The miracles that have been performed at his grave are without number. Also are his appearances and dreams to those who, thinking about him, have sought his help. And from that time up to the present day, consumed by love for Christ, it was not difficult for Holy George to leave all for this love. His status, wealth, and imperial favor, his friends, and the whole world. For this love, the Lord rewarded him with the wreath of unfading glory in heaven and on earth, and with eternal life in his kingdom. The Lord further endowed him with the power to help and need in distress all who honor him and call on his name. If you've ever seen the icon of St. George, it's a fascinating icon. I have one painted in my own church of Annunciation. And you can look at that by going to our website, byzantinecatholic.com. You can see most of the iconography in our church. In that icon, George is seen mounted on a big white horse. And it's a very interesting composition. And he's driving a spear through the head of a dragon. That dragon, of course, symbolizes evil. In the background, there's a young lady, a princess, standing by an open door, peeking outside. The legend of George is that this dragon was attacking the town. And when the dragon was going to attack the princess, it was then that they called upon George. And George came and slayed the dragon and saved the princess. Now, of course, this is legendary, but as always, there is an allegory here, a metaphor. A metaphor for the fight against evil, of which George was a valiant warrior. And so iconography symbolizes that through this very legendary composition of George and a white horse stabbing a dragon. As you might imagine, that's one of the most popular icons in my church among the boys in my church. In fact, they prefer that there was a little more blood in the icon. But, uh, well, we'll say that for another time. <laughs> but St. George is very, very popular saint in the Eastern churches. He's known in the West as well, but especially in the Eastern churches. A symbol of great faith, a warrior for Christ, as we all should be. But as I mentioned, we have another man, male saint, that we honor today, St. Thomas the Apostle. And by the way, in the Western lung of the church, this has become known since John Paul II as the Divine Mercy Sunday. And ever since then, I've always remarked about how similar that theme is, and even the icon of divine mercy from the Western Church, how similar that is to the icon of Christ appearing to St. Thomas from the Byzantine tradition, and also how similar the theme is. How similar the theme is. The theme is one, really, of mercy. As always, when we want to immerse ourselves in the significance of how the Eastern churches observe something, such as today, St. Thomas, the Sunday of Mercy, we walk through, we go on a journey through the liturgical text, the prayer of the church. We are what we pray. We believe what we pray. And this is particularly true in the liturgy of the Eastern churches. So we're going to wander through some of the liturgical text of this day, because in wandering through these texts, 
It's like going on a retreat or a pilgrimage. In fact, that's part of their purpose is to draw us to a, a contemplation of the reality, the mystery, the message of the event. Remember, the events of Scripture are our events. They are timeless. They are as, they are as relevant today as they were then and always will be. The first text comes from the Vespers, the evening prayer for this Thomas Sunday in the Byzantine liturgical tradition. In one of the verses, it says this, Even though the doors were closed, you came to your disciples, O Christ, and Thomas, called the twin, was not with them. Now, keep in mind as I read this, this would normally be prayed to a chant tone from our tradition. Therefore, Thomas did not believe what they told him. You, O Lord, did not deem him unworthy for his lack of faith, but in your goodness you confirmed his faith by showing him your pure side and the wounds in your hands and feet. He touched them, and when he saw you, he confessed you to be neither an abstract God nor merely human. And he cried out, My Lord and my God, glory to you. Now, there's a lot to meditate on here. Once again, we hear something that is very similar to St. Augustine's famous reference to original sin when he called it, oh, happy fault. Not that Augustine was happy about sin. The happy part comes about because God used that occasion of our sin to become incarnate and to suffer and die and to rise and to raise us with him as we celebrate during this time of the season. So in a sense, it becomes a happy fault, or it turned into a happy fault. Well, something similar is happening in the doubt of Thomas. As I mentioned earlier, Thomas gets a bad rap. We always say, doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. But it's interesting, Thomas should not be so much known for his doubt, or that he, he can be. It kind of sets up what he really should be known for. As much as he's known for his profession of faith, he confesses that God is neither abstract God. Now, that's very important, very relevant to today, because so oftentimes, we have the sense that God is, well, he, he's out there. He's a nice thought, but he's kind of distant from us. Let's just be who we want, do what we want. And that's really a fabrication of God in our own mind because it, it keeps him distant enough from us that we don't really have to be that answerable or responsible. We want that autonomy. So we tend to make God out oftentimes in a very abstract way. But it says here that Thomas saw him not as abstract, but very real, and also not only human, but true, yes, truly fully human, except in sin, but not just merely human. And here we have, once again, that great genius of the Eastern spirituality, that living in the both and, in that confluence of two complementary things. Jesus Christ was not an abstract God. He was a real God, an incarnate God, an imminent God, yet transcendent. At the same time, he was also human, but not merely human. See, not either or, both and. And that is the whole purpose of the scripture, of the incarnation, of God's coming on earth. And the proclamation, the affirmation of that, what all the scripture is dedicated to, comes from the so-called doubting Thomas. So God takes the least likely and makes him the most likely, my Lord and my God. When we come back, we're going to wade through more of the liturgical text for this great feast day of the Sunday of St. Thomas. I'm Father Thomas Loyal on Light of the East. 
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the sacred liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. Christ is risen, indeed he's risen. That is our greeting at this time of year. We're wading through, kind of slogging through, in a meditative way, the liturgical text for this great feast of St. Thomas in the Byzantine liturgical tradition. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a kinship to this ancient venerable feast in the Byzantine tradition with that of the more recent feast of divine mercy. There's even a kinship between the icons, and that's something that I can't help noticing, especially as a person who paints icons and as an artist. I have that eye that sees that correlation between the icon of divine mercy and the icon of the appearance to Thomas by Christ in the upper room. So let's look at some more liturgical text. Another one says this, Although the doors were locked, you appeared to your disciples of Christ, but through providence Thomas was not with them. Now you see, there we go again. There we see God setting things up. What we tend to criticize Thomas for, he's always kind of a, maybe his name could have been Johnny, (laughs) Johnny come lately, he's a Tommy come lately, turns out to be very providential because God is setting up Thomas to proclaim that all-important, incredible proclamation we mentioned earlier, that Christ is indeed his Lord, but also our Lord, my Lord, and my God. Thomas said, I will not believe until I see the Lord, until I see the side from which the blood and water of our baptism came forth. Now, there we have the meaning, the allegorical, spiritual, mystical meaning of the water and blood from Christ's side. It was the birth of the church. On the cross, Christ, the new Adam, reconceives the human race with the new Eve, his mother, now the new Eve. And the fluid from his side, the water and the blood, is also a sign of the two great sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. And here it's mentioned in this text. As though Thomas were looking at it in hindsight. And Thomas continues, Until I see the wound by which he healed all people from the great wound. Isn't that a great little, there's a classic play on words that is so characteristic of our liturgical text. It's, it comes from that Greek tradition. 
They love to play on words. Of course, we have it in English here. It might lose a little bit, but it's still it's pretty effective. Until I see the wound by which he healed all people from the great wound. So again, God takes something that is a wound, and he uses that same thing to heal that thing, <laughs> a wound. Think of the cross. The cross was an instrument of death. He uses it to heal death, to make death a passage to life. And Thomas continues, And I see that he is not a pure spirit, but a person made of flesh and bones. Therefore, O Lord, who trampled death and made Thomas firm in his belief, O Lord, glory to you. Now, this next text is very interesting because it brings in another person. Together with Thomas, it brings in St. John, the apostle. And it makes reference to Christ's body in two different ways. It says this, O marvelous wonder, John leaned on the bosom of the word, and Thomas was made worthy to touch his side. Okay, so you get two references to Christ's body. His bosom, in other words, his, his heart. We know that John leaned on the bosom of Christ at the mystical supper, and Thomas was made worthy to touch his side, another part of Christ's body. The first discovered the depth of theology. That would be St. John, the apostle. He discovers the depth of theology. The other was privileged to announce the plan of salvation. For he clearly revealed the mystery of his resurrection, saying, My Lord and my God, glory to you. There's that repeated phrase, that proclamation by Thomas, so important on this Sunday. My Lord and my God. Remember, that's not just Thomas's proclamation. That's ours. Thomas said it. God set it up that Thomas would say that, so that it would be our proclamation at all times. That's the whole point of the incarnation, the whole plan of salvation, that we would acknowledge Christ as our Lord and God and give him glory. But here you see two things being learned. Theology, as John, we call him John, he is a theologian. His gospel is very theological, although it's also very detailed at the same time. And the other announced a plan of salvation. So we have the, the plan and we have the theology behind it being symbolized or seen in these two men, John and Thomas, the two apostles, and how they touch the respective parts of God's body, of Christ's own body, his heart and his side. It's amazing. You know, these things so fascinate me. It, it's just so wonderful for me to be a Byzantine Catholic priest, and to be able to live these words. This is the prayer of my daily prayer life. I get to immerse myself in such contemplation. Okay, let's pick out a few more verses. How great is your infinite compassion, love of mankind, for because of your long suffering, you were struck by your enemies. You were touched by an apostle and deeply pierced by those who denied you. How did you become incarnate? How were you crucified, O sinless one? Teach us to cry out as Thomas, my Lord, my God, glory to you. Now you see, there we bring in the incarnation. Oftentimes in the liturgy, and this is seen even in the iconography, we unite the incarnation and the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ because they become really one continuous movement of an incarnation, of a manifestation of God's love brought to proof, to fulfillment in his death and resurrection. And again, why? As I mentioned before, it's said in this text, teach us to cry out as Thomas, as Thomas. So you see, God uses Thomas for us. Teach us to cry out as Thomas, 
my Lord and my God. Glory to you. Another interesting element that's brought into the liturgical prayer for this day is this idea of things being closed or sealed up. In the Troparion, which is another one of the verses of this day, we sing this, Though the tomb had been sealed, from the tomb you arose, O life in Christ our God. Though the door had been locked, you appeared among the disciples, O resurrection of all. And thus you restored an upright spirit for us according to your great mercy. In one more verse relative to seals, it says this, O Christ, neither the gates of death nor the seals of the tomb nor the bars of the gates could hold you back. But resurrected from the dead, you appeared before your friends, O Master, giving them the peace that surpasses all understanding. Notice these references to gates, seals, the tomb, bars. Well, first of all, there's a little play here on something that is brought in in the liturgical text during Christmas time, and that is the virgin birth. Think of a virgin. A virgin, in a sense, is sealed, and only Christ was able to go beyond the virginal seal, the Virgin Mary, as the only one that could be within her womb. Well, so too, Christ was not only born of a virgin Mary and placed in a manger, a virginal manger. He was also placed in a virginal tomb. Remember, the tomb that he was buried in when he died, remember his body was taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus and was buried in Joseph's tomb, which was, in a sense, virginal. In fact, we say in the liturgical text, he was placed in a new tomb. And he emerges from that tomb as the only one who entered that tomb, just as he was the only one to move beyond the seal of virginity of the Virgin Mary while keeping the seal of her virginity intact. So he kept the tomb, the seal of the tomb intact. So you see how there's a correlation there, a metaphor between the tomb and the Virgin Mary. And Christ then enters the upper room with Thomas there and the other apostles, although it too was sealed. So again, we have another virginal action on the part of Christ. See how all these things are brought together in a kind of a, I'm going to use a term, virginal way, that he enters into something while keeping it intact. That's something only God could do. He kept the Virgin Mary intact. He kept the tomb intact. He kept the door, the upper room intact and yet passed through it, showing how he is that virginal reality. He keeps all things integrated, all things intact, all things together, as only God can do. And he is both man and God. So we have some very deep and profound thought-provoking things in the very liturgical words that we sing in this great Feast of St. Thomas. We have time for just a couple more liturgical texts there. They're very deep and rich and very comprehensive. We're just touching on a few of them. This one is referred to as an ekos. It's a Greek word. It just basically means like a verse. It says, Who stopped the hand of the disciple, meaning Thomas, from being melted when he approached the fiery side of the Savior? Who gave him such boldness to be able to touch this blazing door? Surely it was the one who was touched. For if he had not given this power to a hand made of clay, how could he have touched the wounds which shook both heaven and earth? 
and Thomas received the grace to touch Christ and shout out to him, You are my Lord and my God. That little metaphor of touching and fire and not being melted, did that sound familiar to you? Ah, yes, you guessed it. The same thing is said of St. John the Baptist during the Feast of the Theophany, the baptism of Christ, which is celebrated in the Byzantine liturgical calendar on January 6th. It asks the same question, how can a hand of straw not be burned and consumed by touching the fire of Christ? How can a hand of clay not be melted by the fire of Christ? Same thing with Thomas. So it shows the contrast of God's incredible blazing glory, and yet in his compassion, he allows us to touch him that closely. If you think that's incredible and reserved just for Thomas or St. John the Baptist, well, think of what you may have just done today at liturgy or at Mass. You did touch the fire of the divinity through the liturgy, the prayer, a candle, the smell of incense, but above all, through the reception of the Eucharist, the body, blood, soul, divinity, where God's nature and ours become melted together, distinct yet one. And yet, we were not consumed by that fire. I want to thank you for listening. And again, I wish you Christ has risen, indeed has risen, a blessed, radiant season of our Lord's resurrection. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes, Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. The EWTN home video highlight for April is Fatima, Altar of the World. This documentary testifies to the profound connection between heaven and Fatima. You'll also receive a beautiful one-of-a-kind centennial rosary dedicated to the 100th anniversary of the Fatima apparitions created by Gorelli. Order your DVD and centennial rosary set at EWTNRC.com, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, or call 1-800-854-6316. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!